Lord, regardless of whether we are steeped in understanding of biblical history or whether this is the first time we've ever cracked open your word, I pray that we would be able to understand. Speak to us what we need to hear tonight. And so whatever, all of the levels, Lord, that are represented here from... Uh, from one side to the other, Lord, speak to all of us. Help us to get it, to, to open our eyes and our hearts and our ears and captivate us in your word. And may we have so much fun tonight learning about you and learning about ourselves and how we apply this. Lord, I recognize what we're looking at here is something that took place roughly 3,000 years ago, several thousand miles away, and yet it is still as relevant today as it's ever been. And I just pray we would get that tonight. And Jesus, that you would be exalted that the people, Lord, all of us, me included, would see you through this text. Jesus, you told us that you've come in the volume of the book, in the full edition, and that you haven't come to destroy but the, the law, the, uh, the prophets, but you've come to complete them, to fulfill them. And you spoke to the religious leaders and said that they searched the scriptures, thinking by them they possessed eternal life, and yet they are they that testify of you. So, Lord, I pray that we would see how they testify of you. So have your way now, I pray. Redeem every second as we commit this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. I would say tonight is that would any, please don't just believe me, don't just assume it's true because I say so. It would be a crime for any of us to take anyone for face value because there's an awful lot of kooks out there. And even decent guys say wacky things sometimes. So let's put some context to where we're at and get into our text. Israel went to Shechem to order to ordain Solomon's son Rehoboam. It's David's grandson. When they did it, they asked them to lighten the workload that was required of them and their taxes. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? Rehoboam sought counsel first from his dad's counselors. They all agreed. It's a good idea. But Rehoboam, Solomon's son, promptly refused that. So then he sought counsel from his homeboys. The kids he grew up with, if you will. They suggested he come hard and heavy instead, and this is what he does. Now, this, as you might imagine, doesn't bode well for the people. Every tribe north of Judah's borders basically bails on Rehoboam, Solomon's son. They elect Solomon's old commander instead. His name is Jeroboam, as if things weren't confusing enough, because who calls anyone Jeroboam or Rehoboam today? Well, so Solomon's son, David's grandson, Rehoboam, re, like think of it as redoing Solomon in a bad way, and then Jeroboam with a J, uh, and he is the old commander. Now, here's the problem. Now we have a divided kingdom. The fruit of Solomon's divided heart, by the way. The ten northern tribes, every tribe in essence north of Judah now following Solomon's old commander, Jeroboam, which, by the way, his name means the people strive. Judah and their southern neighbor Ben, Benjamin, side with Solomon's son in essence. Again, his name is Rehoboam, which means the people make big, or if you will, the people make a big deal of. Now, how do these leaders respond? You have this southern guy who, by the way, his dad, I remind you, ruled all of Israel. Now he only gets these two little tribes in the south, and one is his own. What does he do? He gathers 180,000 people, by the way, soldiers from those two tribes to try to take down the 10 northern tribes and somehow this is going to bring them back. Now, does that make any sense to any of you? 10 tribes in the north have a problem. Let's kill them and then they'll want to reconcile with us. I'm not too sure I get that, but that's what's happening here. Now, interestingly enough, a prophet rises up. His name is Shemaiah, which means God is hearing or hear God. And he stops him. He tells him, by the way, God's actually behind this. And that actually makes Solomon's son Rehoboam stop. 
Solomon's commander, on the other hand, has the ten northern tribes. He's got the big chunk. And although promised by God that if he trusted God, he would actually have an established kingdom rich in legacy, instead he forsakes that faith and freaks out in fear. Uh, he says, well, if the people return to Jerusalem, after all, they have these holidays. They're going to show up at these holidays. They're going to miss it, and they're going to bail on me. They're going to turn on with Solomon's son, and they'll kill me in the process. So with all of that, I mean, after all, the kid is David's grandson. So he commits the most reminded sin in Scripture. For all the times that God could remind us of Judas's sin, for all the times that God could remind us of any other sin, this is the one he reminds us of over 22 different times in, the, in this book and the next, First and Second Kings. That says, oh, and that sin of Jeroboam. Don't forget about that sin of Jeroboam, the one where he made the calves and all that. So what does he do? This guy, instead of trusting God to say, God will actually hook me up and set me up and take, me, take care of me, instead, he pitches this to the ten northern tribes. He says, first of all, he throws out the convenient card. You know, isn't it so far to go down to Jerusalem? Wouldn't that be horrible? This is so much less effort. And by the way, I want to warn you, if you're walking with the Lord, you really can't OD on Jesus. I challenge you, prove me wrong. But there's always going to be somebody, on the other hand, that's going to look and go, you know... This is the more convenient, easy, lay back and relax and really don't do anything. Don't go overboard. Yeah, well, you can't walk on water unless you go overboard. I've learned that. No, with that in mind, so they got this kind of idea. And then he goes and he takes these two golden calves. He makes something you can touch and smell and feel and hear versus this God you really can't see anyways. And he puts one in the far north in the area of Dan. That's the northernmost tribe. And one in the southern area for his kingdom in the area of Bethel. Oddly enough, meaning house of God. Uh, with all of that, and then he says, hey, by the way, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. Don't forget that. Now, all of a sudden, instead of the one true God, we've got these two cows. After all, who doesn't feel like you're safe if you're behind a cow? Big, strong, I don't know. It makes me hungry, but I'm not really sure that I feel the safest by it. I have a friend who's a rampant meat eater, and I hope this doesn't offend anyone. But he says, if God didn't want us to eat steak, he wouldn't have made cows slow and stupid. I don't know. Anyway, that's his idea. In all of this, when a guy starts talking plural, and please hear me in this because the same thing is going to happen here and well as well, not in this room, but in what's called Christianity in general, is this idea, come on, let's all join hands and let's get plural. And if we can get plural instead of the one true God who did this amazing thing and still wants a relationship with you, now kind of pick and choose what you want, which, by the way, makes you a consumer and you're in control and you're the boss and there's no one you really have to submit to because who in the world in their right mind is going to choose something to submit to unless they have to? And he says, so here's the one, touch the egg. These are tangible. They're closer. It's easier. We'll make it up as we go along. That'll be a little easier. We'll kind of take what is what we're used to and we'll bend it enough so that it's kind of Jewish ease, you know? Kind of like we might say it's kind of Christianese. It's not really Christian, but it's Christianish enough. We've got enough stained glass and enough incense and a guy in a robe or whatever and a pointy hat. If we can get enough of that going, we could feel like... We are really doing it right when really we're completely doing it wrong. Now, let's put that into context for a second in our own lives. Let's say there's a couple, Shmadam and Shmangel, just roughly. And somewhere down the line, let's say Shmadam really loves Shmangel, but somewhere down the line, Shmadam says, you know what? Shmadam says, you know, if I could just 
take somebody else out to dinner and buy somebody else flowers and do all of the things that I would do with Shmangel. Isn't it just the same thing anyways? Well, no, he married Shmangel. He didn't marry anyone else, but he's still doing all the same things, but with somebody else. Now, you can't imagine Shmangel is going to think that's a good idea. Well, imagine if somebody plays all of those same things, but doesn't really do it with God. Do you think God's going to go, well, as long as you're doing the things, it's okay? I don't think God likes it at all. And he makes that really clear. So this guy sets up these altars. He puts these cows on it, these golden cows, as if we didn't learn from Aaron's. And then he's like, come on, you can touch, you can feel it. And then he goes beyond that and he goes, you know what? Let's go back to where he brought us out of Egypt because it really isn't about a relationship. Now let's just go back to some really cool moment and let's blame it on him for that. And then let's, well, while we're at it, now we've got to do a whole new everything. So we, now, in essence, what happens is it necessitates a whole new everything, a perversion and counterfeit of the old. So let's have new holidays. We can't have those old ones. We've got to have new ones on new days. And new priests. We can't have those old priests because those old priests are going to do it the right way or well, their way. So we need our own guys that will do it the way we want them to do it with new procedures and new sacrifices and rites and rituals, new priesthoods, new places to do this. But God isn't taking this line down. He's calling his people back, not to Rehoboam, I remind you, Solomon's son, but to him. Because in all of this, the people, hear me on this, they're religious, but they're not seeking a relationship with God. And if you think that all that God really wants you to do is join a political movement or do a bunch of rites and rituals, you don't get marriage, because marriage ain't that. I didn't marry my wife. By the way, we've been married for over 27 years. By now, we've got at least I've gotten a few things right, I'd like to think. I didn't marry her because what I needed was someone to do my laundry. I didn't marry her because in the end of it all, I thought it would give me a tax break. I married the woman, and still I'm glad I am, because I want a relationship with her. And that commitment afforded me a deeper and more intimate relationship. So when someone comes up to you and says, oh, you're spiritual, I'm spiritual, as if we're going to go, oh, cool, let's just join hands, there would be like you being a pharmacist, and a guy comes up and goes, oh, you sell drugs, I sell drugs, we're together. And you're like, not exactly. It may look like the practices we do are similar, but they're for very different reasons. So now here's the situation. We've got this altar with a cow on it in the south, in Bethel, and one in the north, and other people have a choice to make. Do they really want to go and worship the cow, or are they going to brave it going, and hear me on this, they would have to go around people that are probably part of their family, in their neighborhood, and be chided by them as they walk around, and go, oh, there they go down to Jerusalem. How stupid is that? They could have just stayed here with us. And you probably have people like that, that are like, well, there you go. What do you mean? Tuesday night, you're going to a Bible study? What are you, like in a cult? Actually, no, to be honest. Imagine someone going, wait a minute, didn't you take your wife out on a date last week? What are you trying to do, take her out a second time? That's weird. I don't know about your marriage, but I'd take her out every night if I could. No, chapter 13, verse 1, it says, Behold, a man of God went from Judah, I remind you, that's the south, where Jerusalem is, to Bethel, actually, anyways, by the word of the Lord, and Jeroboam stood at the altar to burn incense. Interesting, this king who ordained a whole new priesthood and all that, he still somehow made himself the guy in charge. Isn't that weird how that works? And the guy now, though a king, is kind of doing all the priestly stuff. He's making his sacrifices. But this man, who by the way, we're going to read a lot about man of God. There's two different men of God here in this text. 
Here's the first of them. We don't have his name, by the way. Did you notice? It doesn't say, and then Bob or Hank or Shemai. We can get cool and get some kind of cool, you know, Israeli name. But in the end of it all, Ischach. Regardless, at this point, he's just a guy. In other words, God's like, it's irrelevant what his name is. The point is, I found a guy that was willing to do what I told him, and he did it. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, if, what if you don't think you have a name to yourself? What if you don't think, well, I'm not the man. God's like, I'm not looking for the man. I'm looking for a man. Do you qualify? I'm looking for a human. Do you, do you qualify? I love the fact God doesn't need qualified. He wants available. He does the work. So, this guy shows up in verse 2. It says, he cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord. Stop. Notice he doesn't cry out against the king first. He cries out against the altar. Problem is, this is where the people are going to worship, and it's the wrong place. He cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord, and he said, Oh, altar, altar! Thus says the Lord, Behold, a child, Yodziah, by name, shall be born in the house of David. And on you he shall sacrifice the priests on the high places who burn incense to you, and men's bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign that same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Surely the altar will split apart, and the ashes on it shall be poured out. So imagine there's the king and he's kind of got his whole thing going on. He's got his whole new set of, of priests that are with them. And all these people are, are gathered around and go, isn't it cool that this is more convenient and easy and we can kind of make it up as we go along? How cool is that? And the king's kind of there and he's like, check me out. I'm priest and stuff and blessings. And how is that? And, you know, and coming to the positions and all. And then somewhere in all of it, this guy kind of shows up and it isn't like he like shows up levitating or gold plate on his head. He just kind of shows up in the crowd and he's like, Oh, altar! That would kind of be distracting. He's yelling at your altar. Oh, altar, altar! Let me tell you something. There's a kid that's going to show up, and he even gives him his name, Yotziah. We see it as Josiah. If you're Amish, you'd probably say Josiah. But the Yotziah, as I say in the Hebrew, Yotziah, and he's going to show up, and when he does, this thing's going to be desecrated. Bones are going to be burned on you. And just so you know, I'm not just making this up. Let's do something really cool so you know that this altar that you're sacrificing on is going to split open and the ashes are going to, you tell me, what's the word he uses? The ashes are going to do what? What's the word? Pour it out. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with ashes, but pouring isn't necessarily the thing they do. Pouring is usually because of a Liquid, You got that, right? Ashes have a tendency to blow away. They tend to be more of a cloud. And the word that is used for what it's worth here is actually a word that literally means to pour like liquid for what it's worth. So he looks at this and he goes, now, here's going to be your sign. First of all, when that tells me something, my guess is the ashes are spilled with blood. He goes, that altar you think is so cool, that thing's going to crack in half right in front of you. Now, I'll remind you, the altar is supposed to be the place where you met God. That was the idea. It was the place of sacrifice, and it was the place where, in essence, you came and God came and you met there. That was supposed to be the idea. Now, that's weird because, according to them, if they're making that offering, guess who you're trying to meet there? The cow. I remind you, the cow's on top of this thing. I don't think he's going to move. I don't think he's going to move. Sorry. I don't think he's going to do any of that. To this day, up and down in the north, you can still see the altar, by the way. It still exists. Not the one he's speaking of. 
So don't miss this. At this moment, this guy shows up. We don't get a name. We don't even know what he looks like. But he shows up and he starts screaming at the altar and he says, there's a kid that's going to show up. By the way, this particular prophecy that he is using here is going to actually show up 360 years later, just in case you were wondering. Now, for what it's worth. And he's going to, you know, no. The sign, he tells us, is that the altar is going to be divided. It's going to crack in half and it's going to spill out because this is a counterfeit altar. The real place where man meets God, the same thing is going to happen, but it's going to be genuine. And what's going to happen there is that my Savior is going to hang on a cross. He'll have his back split. And he'll have his, pierce, his side pierced and out of it, blood and water will flow. This whole thing prepares me for that. And here now, I'm being reminded. So I look at this, and he starts to tell me, hey, you need to see what's going to happen. This Josiah, by the way, that we'll read about here, there's so much to learn from him. First of all, Josiah, we're going to show up 360 years later in the next book, Second Kings. This guy isn't just saying a guy's going to show up a few years from now. He's going to show up 360 years later. And when he takes his dad's name is Mun, whose dad's name is Manasha, whose dad's name is Hezekiah, if you're familiar, Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a great king. He was a king of the south when that north was taken captive. He has a son who is the worst king in Judean history, Manasha. His name literally means he'll make you forget causes you to forget. I'll tell you something. You have a great dad and the son's name is, I'll make you forget. I think I should be warned. He also rules the longest. Rules for 55 years. He has a son named Amun who only makes it a couple years. And then from that then comes this guy. The guy's actually murdered by his own sort of bodyguards, his own secret service. The people are really upset about it. They kill the bodyguards who did it. And then they put his son in charge who happens to be named Yoziah, as we see here. He is eight years old when he takes the throne. That's interesting. So when he says, notice he doesn't just say, a guy's going to take over. He says, a kid's going to do this. And that's exactly the case. He's a kid. He's eight years old when he becomes king. Now, his grandpa, Manasha, Mr. Forgetfulness, he desecrated the temple, put obscene altar. Now, when you hear of an Asherah pole, I'm going to try to say this carefully. Often they use the word pillar. It is a giant pillar of what separates boys from girls. Could you imagine a giant one of those in a temple? Well, most rap music sounds like that. Anyways, but there is this, and then there are these ritual booths where people would, in essence, this temple that was dedicated to God in Solomon's day, within 400 years, becomes a place where people go and get prostitutes. And they not only rent the prostitute, if you will, they do it in the temple proper. Now, this kid, 8 years old, it tells us 18 years later, he's 26. And twenty at 26, he's like, you know what? As much as we've been trying to get the people right, the temple's still a mess. We need to go clean it out. So he sends the guy that's in charge, in essence, of trying to redo the, re the restoration process. 
And he says to him, hey, would you go and check with the high priest and see what kind of money we have so we can make sure we can pay the right guys to do the job. While that's happening, the high priest is helping clean out the temple and he finds a scroll. He finds a scroll of the Torah, the first five books of scripture. And as he does, he goes and he goes, tell the king. And the king goes, hey, king, I remind you, the kid's 26 now. Think about how old you are at this moment. That was, you know, a couple of years for me. For some of you, that's still to be a couple of years. Now, <clears throat> and he says, hey, we found this book. So this king looks and he goes, whoa, we're not doing this right at all. We have a lot to get right. So he calls all the people together that's willing in Jerusalem, including all that inhabit Jerusalem, and he says, I need to read this to you. And for hours and hours and hours, he reads to them. And then he's like, we need to get right. And he pulls all that nastiness out. He burns it in the two valleys that are beside Jerusalem. On one side, by the way, that's the Valley Kidron that Jesus will walk through when he's on his way to his trial and then uh, on his way to be uh, crucified. Now, on the other side, the Valley of Chinom, which literally means, if you will, the Valley of Hell, where people would make their, they would murder their babies to the God of pleasure. Solomon built those things. And he says, man, let's get rid of all that. And as they're tearing all of that apart, they're like, hey, we found some bones. And he goes, oh, those are those bones of that priest. Let's burn them. Now, whether or not he's reading this text or not, he does exactly what is promised 360 years before. So this guy here is yelling, there's this guy that's going to come. He's a kid. He's a kid. And he is going to... He's going to rip this thing apart. He's going to burn the bones of those priests. And just so you know, I'm not just making this up to be weird because I want attention. Let's just show you something really cool. Let's rip open this altar and let it spill out so you can see this is the counterfeit. The real one's going to be ripped open and spilled out, but you're going to have to wait another 800 years, 900 years. Now, verse 4. It came to pass. The king, you can imagine. Remember the king's playing priest at the moment, King Eroboam? You can imagine he's probably not real happy about this. So King Jeroboam heard the saying of the man of God who cried out against the altar in Bethel. And he stretched out his hand to the altar, I'm sorry, from the altar, saying, Arrest him! Because guess what? Obviously the problem's the prophet, isn't it? Then his hand, when he stretched it out, withered so that he couldn't pull it back to himself. Well, at that moment he realizes he... Now imagine this. A hand is stretched out and decaying in front of him, withering, shriveling. He can't stop. He can't pull his hand back. You know what's interesting? How many times God tells you he stretches out his hand to us? In the book of Isaiah, written, by the, by the way, by the time that Hezekiah, great-grandpa, the kid, when the northern kingdom was falling apart and actually being taken captive, during that time Isaiah was prophesying, and God speaks specifically in chapters 5 and 6, but elsewhere as well. He speaks about how, and in chapter 9, how specifically all of these horrible things are going to happen that you would call out to him and he goes, and yet my hand is still stretched out. Not hands, but hand. You need to recognize there's a difference. When a person outstretches their hands to you, they want to hug. When a person stretches out their hand to you, they want to rescue you. And he's like, my hand's still stretched out to you, man. Your life's going to really stink. And then it's going to super stink. And then it's going to uber stink. And then it's just going to frankly suck. And then somewhere in all of that, you need to recognize, I am not pulling my hand away. You need to see there is a hand that is constantly stretched out to you because I want to save you. And you're too busy trying to do it yourself. You're too busy running from me. 
And the reason I say that is, I wonder if this image would be etched in our head when we read Isaiah, when we get there. Because now there's a king who's obviously pointing in the wrong direction, as if the problem with his prophet. And he looks, and, he, and now his hand is stretched out, and he can't even pull it back. Now what do you do at that moment? This king who thinks he has all this power doesn't even have the power to pull his hand back. Verse 5, the altar was split apart. The ashes poured out on the ground, according to the sign in which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. Now the king answered, and he said to the man of God, please, notice the word please. I think his tone has changed. How about you? From arrest that punk to, excuse me, please, entreat the favor of the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand might be restored to me. Now it's amazing what happens when you kind of get you know, thrown down to the mat for a moment, how your attitude changes. The accuser is now asking for mercy. challenge you, read the first portion of John 8 and tell me if that sounds familiar. So the man of God, and by the way, that would be those who would throw a stone. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and he became as before. Now, up to this point, if the chapter were here, it would be kind of a really cool chapter, because what you got is kind of this old tough, you know, man who we don't have by a name, kind of shows up, yells at the altar, the king's like, oh, you're a jerk, shut up. And then he goes like, oh, wow, okay, things aren't going so well for me. Okay, I changed my mind. I really like you. Uh, please help me out. And he does. But you need to recognize something. That just because a great thing happens does not mean that you're immune from doing something stupid right afterwards. And that's what we'll find out here. Please hear me. Just because God does something amazing does not mean you're not prone to make a horrible choice afterwards. Verse 7, it says, The king said to the man of God, Come home and with me and refresh yourself, and I'll give you a reward. I mean, after all, you did just help heal me. Verse 8, But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half of your house, I would not go with you nor would I eat bread with you, nor drink water in this place. For so it was commanded to me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall not eat bread, nor drink water, nor return by the same way you came. Three things strikes. Quick, what are those three things he can't do? God says, don't do these things. Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. And don't return the way you came. So when this happens, these are your no-nos. Don't go back there. Do your thing, don't stop to eat, don't stop to drink, do your thing and leave. I think that's pretty simple. He obviously seems to understand it because when the king's like, hey, thanks, can I reward you? Come over and let's have a feast. And he's like, can't. Can't go back, can't eat bread, can't drink water. Now, I don't know if the king were like, let's face it, if you're a conniver like me, I'd think, well, then let's go somewhere else and we'll have some meat and some wine. I mean, you know, obviously that's not me. But you get the idea where it's like, well, you said water, but does that mean everything? I mean, the bottom line is it's pretty clear. What are those three things? Don't do what? Don't eat what? Don't eat bread. What else? Don't drink water. What else? Yeah, don't go back the way you came. All right. So we went another way and didn't return by the way he came to Bethel. Okay. Guess what? He's doing all right so far, right? Now, verse 11. Now an old prophet dwelt in Bethel. Stop. What do we know was in Bethel? The cow. The bad altar. That's now split ashes pouring out with their goo. Why is this guy not showing up? Why did a guy have to come from Judah 
to rebuke the altar when, they, when he actually had somebody on payroll, if you will, already in the town. Does that kind of make you suspicious? makes me suspicious. So there's an old prophet. He dwelt in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the works that the man of God had done that day in Bethel. He also told their father the words in which had been spoken to the king. Which he had spoken to the king. In other words, what words did he say to the king? Can't go back the way I that I came, that I left. Also, what else can't I do? Eat bread and drink water. Three pretty specific things, right? No. So they're like, Dad, you're a prophet. Why didn't you go? I mean, this guy came from from Judah. Do you realize the difference in, in the, the mileage he just racked up? You just you could have. It was a walk for you. Oh, by the way, he did say the king really wanted to reward him. You could have been rewarded, Dad. But he couldn't go back the way he came, and he couldn't eat bread, and he couldn't drink water. The father said, which way did he go? For his sons had seen which way the man of God went when he came from Judah. So they're like, well, he went that way. Then he said to his sons, saddle the donkey for me. I kind of get the idea they have one. He didn't say saddle one of them, saddle that one. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode on it. Now we've got two men of God. You got the guy that was obedient, yelled at an altar, helped kill to bring the king's hand back, told him about this this boy that's coming 360 years from now, who is now going back a different way. And then you've got this old prophet in Bethel. What in the world are you doing there? That's where we're at. Verse 14. The old prophet from Bethel went after the man of God, and he found him sitting under an oak. Why is he sitting under an oak? We don't know. Maybe the terebinth was taken. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? I'm guessing they're not in Judah. Or he wouldn't say it that way. And he said, I am. And he said to him, Come home with me and eat bread. Really? Not even just come home with me, but come home and eat bread? Isn't it amazing? I don't know about you, but I'm going to speak about me in this sense. Not because I like to talk about me, but I'm trying to make it easier on you. There are times where God says something very specifically. And somebody actually says, how about something completely the opposite? Especially when God says, whatever you do, don't do this. And someone says, how about we do this? And it's even the wording God said. God's like, can I make it any easier on you than this? Clearly, the point is not understanding, is it? Let me give you a case in point. There was a particular group. I don't want to pick on who it is because I don't want to you know, embarrass anyone that witnesses about Jehovah, but just the same. And in this particular group of people, they say they have their prophets. As they have their prophets, one of their prophets was saying, I know exactly the day that Jesus is going to show up. Stop. Jesus had already said back in Matthew 24, it, nobody knows the day or the hour. Now, if he'd have said a month, at least it would have been harder to prove. The fact that the guy said the day, I already know there's a problem. Now, I know the day is coming. By the way, world war is kind of coming around. It does look like the end of the world. First world war, you've never seen anything like this. Let's just be honest. It looked like the end of the world. We've never seen anything like that. So he said the day. And then we waited. Well, none of us were alive, but they waited. Guess what? He didn't show up. Probably figured that out. 
But then this guy's really stuck. I mean, you're going to lose all your clientele if you just like, oops. I mean, come on, prophet. We could all be allowed to be wrong. Well, according to the book of Deuteronomy, if you're going to call yourself a prophet, you have to be 100% right 100% of the time or they stone you. I think it's a rough occupation. You know, it'd be really rough to get life insurance if you put you were a prophet. And then, you know, so the joke is, why are there so many false prophets? Because we stop stoning them. Anyways, uh, I, and I'm not saying you should do that. I'm just saying you get the idea. So the guy has to come up with something. And he isn't going to say he's wrong. So he says, well, Jesus did come back, but we weren't ready. Now, I don't know about you, but I would kind of guess that when Jesus is going to come back, it isn't like, oh, I, I'm sorry, I didn't get all the data because if I did, I wouldn't have come back because you guys aren't ready. Really? I came back and you weren't ready. And it says, so as a result of that, he went to the inner room. Now, why is that such a big deal? Because in Matthew 24, Jesus said specifically, if they say there he is in the desert or there he is in the inner room, don't believe him. You can't get, if you would have said he showed up and he went to McDonald's, at least it wasn't in scripture to say exactly what Jesus said, don't believe. Now it's just an issue of obedience. Does that make sense? I mean, the guy picked exactly what Jesus said. I just want to warn you, people are going to say this. And when they say this, you know, it's wrong. So the guy's like, what do I say? What do I say? Oh, I'll say this. He wants to be in a room. It should stick out. In our text here, this guy's like, hey, why don't you come back the way you came and eat bread? Not even eat, but eat bread. That's two X's on your X factor, isn't it? Now the man responds in verse 16. I cannot return with you, nor can I go in with you. Neither can I eat bread nor drink water with you in this place. He's still not in Judah or he wouldn't have to say that. Guess what? God gave me three things not to do. And here they are. Not to go back, not to eat bread, not to drink water. You're inviting me to do two of those three things. I've been told by the word of the Lord, you shall not eat bread, nor drink water there, nor return by going the way you came. And up to this point, he's been doing well. But now he's in a conversation with a guy that just invited him. I remind you, who's a prophet? God doesn't see he's pretending to be. He's a prophet. But just because a guy is a prophet does not mean he's being obedient to God. So this prophet, the guy from Bethel, verse 18, he said to him, I too am a prophet as you are. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, bring him back with you to your house. Don't miss this, that he might eat bread and drink water. Are you kidding me? All three? He was lying to them. You think. Now, did you notice all three things were right there? What do you do? When God makes his word clear, and someone, no, notice, there are, here are the two things that always seem to override. One, we've got a prophet, spiritual experience. Second, there's an angel. An angel told me. I want to warn you. Just because an angel speaks to somebody does not mean it's the truth. You think just because a guy glows, everything's going to be good? And second, Corinthians chapter 11 verse 14 he says no wonder 
Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So as you were like, go towards light. It was an angel of light. Clearly it must be God. Not according to this. And it says, it shouldn't surprise us then that those who serve him pretend, masquerade, act as if they were ministers of righteousness. Someone's like, well, how can I believe in God when there's this guy and this is what he's doing? I'm like, well, you should look at these verses. It actually proves these verses. It says that Satan knows he could do more work and more damage by pretending to be a Christian than he would actually by just trying to make 80s album covers look cool. So, case in point, I'm about to tell you a story, and we're almost done, believe it or not. I'm about to tell you a story I'm not proud of, but I believe it illustrates this quite well. But I will say this first. Well, let me just say this. When I entered into university, I was not saved. Matter of fact, I was not close to being saved. I was not remotely saved. I was really, really, really unsaved. My behavior, my mindset, my heart, my feelings, very, very unsaved. I lived on the music floor. That's a floor where all the musicians, because of the importance of the jazz program at where I lived. We were visited by another group who, by the way, believed that they had heard from an angel initially as well, whose name sounds a lot like somewhere between Moron and Morden. And, and I'm not trying to pick on them either. But they would say, it's an angel that told them all this. And they would show up on our floor. And they would knock at 8 a.m. in the morning to try to share with us their information. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this. We had classes at 1 and 2 in the morning. That's the weirdness of being a musician. So an 8 o'clock is unthinkable. That's almost the ultimate sin on the music floor. And so these guys knew that, and they would come back every time as if they were a mouse in my house. And they would and they would do whatever they could, in essence, to make sure that they knocked as loud as they could and everything, and we could not get rid of them. We were like, oh my goodness, how do we stop these guys from coming to our floor? Well, some guy, and I won't say who because I don't want to incriminate myself, came with this idea. Well, what if then we gave him a good reason to leave? Well, we went to the charity shop. There was called the Salvation Army. And we found a bunch of white shirts and black ties. And we ran around with little things we had fabricated to look like we had little badges that said that we were elders. And we did horrible things around the campus. Just obscene. Well, for the most part, just obnoxious, to be honest. Just obnoxious things. But because we looked like them, they were kicked out of our campus. They were not allowed back on our campus. Because they're like, oh, you guys are the guys that did this and this and this. We saw pictures. Now, the whole point was, is before I was saved, I knew this. If you could act and look like them and do horrible things or stupid or dumb or obnoxious things, it would be to the damage of the original, the, the original group. And I just want you to know, that's exactly what Satan's doing. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, it says, Even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel then what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. Do you realize what Paul is saying? He's going, look at. I'm not telling you an angel won't lie to you. If another, even if it's an angel preaches any other gospel than the one that's the real gospel, let him go to hell. That's what Paul is saying. He's not mincing words here. He's that serious about it. And the reason I say that is 
This guy says, hey, man, I'm a prophet. I heard from an angel. What do you do to test that? You have to be confident that you know the word of God. Now, let's be honest. Have any of you have a hard time understanding what God told this guy not to do? It wasn't really difficult, was it? What were those three things again? Don't do what? Don't eat bread. Don't drink water. Don't go back the same way. We got it. I too am a prophet. And the Lord told me, just kidding. You should come back with me. Eat bread, drink water. Now, not just come back and have a meal. I mean, he picked the exact words God told him not to. Now, I want you to know there's another religion out there that actually has this law they call abrogation. And the idea is, if there's a revelation and a new one's the opposite, get rid of the old one and the new one's good. Scripture tells us that everything is completely in union with itself. Jesus did not go, I am a new idea. Check me out. Let's get rid of all this. He says, I am the fulfillment. Read all of that and you'll realize all this has been promising of me for thousands of years. That's what makes Jesus unique among a million other things. So look at verse 19. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Wow. I mean, is there any part of you that just goes, really? No, it happened as they sat at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. The old prophet? Yep. And he cried out to the man of God who had came from Judah, saying, thus says the Lord. Imagine, the guy that actually dragged you into sin. Well, he didn't drag, he just invited you. You went on your own, right? Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the word of the Lord... And have not kept the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you. But guess what? You came back, you ate bread, and you drank water. In the place in which the Lord said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water, your corpse shall now not come to the tomb of your fathers. So it was after he'd eaten bread and after he had drunk. Guess what he probably drank? Water, yeah. And he saddled his donkey for him. The prophet went and he brought him back. And when he had gone, a lion met him on the road and killed him. And his corpse was thrown on the road. And the donkey he was riding just stood there. Now, I don't know about you, but if a lion is attacking anything near me, I don't have to be the donkey or not. I'm gone. And you know, you've probably heard the joke. It's like, look, I don't have to be the fastest. I just have to be faster than the slowest. But the donkey's like, oh, look, there's a lion. He's tearing that corpse apart. Well, I'll just stick around and watch this for a while. So the lion, by the way, now also stood by the corpse. Now, imagine walking by, da-da-da, normal day, going to go check out my bananas and my kumquats and my za'atar, and I'm looking, and I'm like, oh, there's a lion. He's kind of standing there. Oh, there's a dead body. There's a donkey. You just don't see that every day. Let's just be honest. So why this? Let's face it, the guy could have been riding his donkey, dun da 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 then ba-boom! A lightning be- a bolt could have just blasted him. It would have worked. A sinkhole could have swallowed him. There could have been a big fish that was flying through the air, swallowed him like Jonah. I mean, there's a lot of different options that are, by the way, equally as weird as this one is. Now, please understand, as a Bible student, and I'm speaking of myself, I pray you are as well, every time I hear something weird, or I read something weird, I'm like, I should probably take a deeper look at that. So I'm like, okay, a lion and a donkey. When was the last time I saw a lion? Huh. The last time I saw a lion were 12 statues of lions up Solomon's throne. Remember Solomon 
actually basically tried to make himself look like someone from a rap video. And he's like, check me out. I'm large and in charge. I'm going to get a, a whole ivory you know, palace. I'm going to make these you know, steps of this crazy wood that nobody can seem to find anywhere. I'm going to take this ivory palace, basically this ivory uh, throne, and I'm going to cover it in gold because ivory is not cool enough. And then I'm going to put these lions like on each step so that as you walk up, it's like, wow, this guy's the deal. I think there's something to learn from that. It's like Solomon's pride and him being consumed with himself took him down. And I'm being warned of that even here. The next time I read it is here, a prophet. And it's interesting. The next time I'll read it after this will be in First Kings 20. It will also be about a prophet to somebody who's being disobedient, by the way, who won't do what God's told him to do. 1 Kings 20, verse 36 says, Then he said, Because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion's going to kill you. Surprise! Guess what? That happens. Now, in 2 Kings, when Israel's brought back a portion of them that remained in the northern tribes, and then they're repopulated by a whole bunch of other people from the Assyrian Empire, they're doing, at the beginning it says that the lions were just killing people because they weren't seeking God. And the Assyrians were like, well, you know, the problem is we didn't teach them how to do the rites, the rituals. The rites, the rituals. What about the God? Huh. It's interesting. What about a donkey? Well, it's interesting because the last couple of times I saw a donkey was, I remind you, Rehoboam trying to send a guy to go and collect taxes. Does that sound familiar? Because he refused to actually accept what God told him. First Kings chapter 2 there was a guy who made David's life really miserable named Shammai who Solomon's like I'm going to keep you alive but you have to stay in Jerusalem you leave Jerusalem you die fair enough because I should just kill you right now I could kill you right now well you can just stay in Jerusalem and I won't kill you okay the guy's got he's there for a couple years and then his, a slave runs away and the guy's like Psh, I'm just going to leave and get him well guess what he left Jerusalem and that guy saddled his donkey and went to Achish, the king of Gath, to seek his slaves. They had escaped. Guess what? He got caught and he got killed. Peter tells us about, the, of course, the prophet Nachaman, who had to be rebuked by a dumb donkey. Donkeys are known, by the way, for being smart, but they're also known for being extremely stubborn. The problem with a donkey, by the way, isn't that it isn't smart. The problem is it has a will too strong to be governed sometimes. And I look at this and I go like, hmm. The will that was too strong to be governed took a guy to his own death by the pride of something that we see with a like this lion. Now, verse 25, Therefore men passed by and saw the corpse thrown on the road and the lion standing by the corpse. And then they went and they told the city to the old prophet, hey, by the way, you want to hear something weird? I mean, you're an old prophet. Weird things happen. Apparently they don't know he's part of this. So they told him, you know, it says, now the old prophet who had brought him back from the way, remember that was the whole part of this, he said, is this the man of God who was disobedient to the word of the Lord? Therefore, the Lord has delivered him to the lion. Apparently this was news to the prophet. Just torn him and kill him according to the word of the Lord in which he spoke to him. And he spoke to his son saying, saddle the donkey for me, he saddled it. He went and found the corpse on the road. Second time he saddled the donkey. The last time was to bring this guy back. And the donkey and the lion standing by the corpse. Apparently, neither seemed to be moving. Well, actually, we should say all three. Let's be honest. I don't think the corpse is moving either. 
And the lion had not eaten the corpse, nor turned at the donkey. That wasn't what he was there for. And the prophet took up the corpse of the man of God, laid it on donkey, brought it back. So the prophet came to the city to mourn and bury him. He laid the corpse in his, in his tomb, and they mourned over him, saying, Alas, my brother, how strange is this? And so it was after he had buried him that he spoke to his son, saying, Hey, when I'm dead, why don't you bury me in the tomb where this, where this guy, this man of God, is buried? Lay my bones beside his bones. For the saying in which he cried out to the Lord God against the altar of Bethel, he's like, hey, that guy actually had an important message. And against the shrines of the high places when he came to the cities of Samaria shall surely come to pass. After this event, Jeroboam did not turn from his evil way. Even though he got his hand back, even though the altar split and the ashes gushed out. But again, he made priests from every class of people for the high prices. Now notice he, he made priests. I'm guessing at this point he's going to tell him, you do it. Didn't work out so well for me last time when I did it. Whoever wished, he consecrated him, and he came to one of the priests of the high places. And this thing was the sin of the house of Jeroboam, so as to exterminate and to destroy it from the face of the earth. He's like, this guy is really testing my patience here, and this is going to be the end of him. This is what's going to take him down. Now, before we go to prayer, I need to make this clear. How in the world do we apply that aspect of it? We get the idea of the real sacrifice being torn apart, being pierced and blood and water flowing. But here's the simplest of it. If you've accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross, his payment for your sins, and his resurrection to make you to be the Lord of your life and to make it new, to, to be so that he could reinvent you from the ground up, beautiful as it is, as he came from the ground up, if you will, then you're a new person. And just because something's convenient or tangible or something that you feel like you have a lot more choice in does not make it right. And somewhere down the line, I guarantee you, there are going to be people who, by the way, I love the fact they say he's an old prophet. He didn't have to be listed as an old prophet. He could have just been listed as a prophet, a lazy prophet, a stupid prophet, a prophet who was disobedient. But he's an old guy. Someone that apparently the people knew. I want to warn you. You'll have old spokesmen show up to you too. People that you've known for a long time. Even in some cases, trust the word, and sometimes they've been right. He's an old prophet. Chances are he's had, he said some things in his day that have really meant, that have been right. But God has spoken to you, and he's made his word clear. And they're like, yeah, but I've had a new spiritual experience. And what God said to you before, uh, let's try something new. The problem is, trying something new is actually this, going back where you came from. That's the simplest of it. And you know what you're doing? You're basically fellowshipping in the wrong place. You're breaking bread, which, by the way, is becoming one with another group of people. You're inviting yourself into the family of people that are inviting you to your death. Come on, it's easier! Come on, it's cool! You don't have to do the hardcore thing. You're doing Bible stuff. Oh, come on. We could just have spiritual experiences. Isn't that cool enough? You can sing more songs. You could feel more tingly. Come on. Come back. And if you came from a world that that was the case, that really appeals because you know it. But God said, no, no, no. You need to know this, that the vehicle of ministry only has forward. There's no reverse on that vehicle. You can't go back. 
Even if you drive through area you're familiar with, it's going to be new because God's changed it. Things have changed. It won't be the place it was. Neither are you. You are not the person you were when you were there. And there's going to be someone that's like, oh, hey, listen, I know that you've heard God and this is what God said, but you need to go backwards. Come back with us, man. You're cooler there. You're kind of dull now. You're old enough, whatever, you get it. Whatever the term is, that's going to hurt when you hear it. You come on back with us and break bread with us, man. Come back where you came from. Or in this case, just come back where God told you not to go back to. You went there, you said what you needed to say, now get out and don't go back. And what you said was a matter of judgment. Man, when I first got saved, then after a while, God took a fun away from a lot of things that I was used to. Perhaps you're familiar with things like that. And they were doing something that was illegal that I had partaken in before. Well, no, it wasn't illegal and I didn't partake in it. But, um, but anyways, and I just kind of looked at the people and went, this is stupid. I can't believe you think this is fun. There's nothing fun about this. You guys are dumb. Now, granted, it wasn't the truth in love, but it was the truth. And... And that because it's like, because I was dumb. I was dumb thinking this was cool not that long ago. It's just not dumb. And I've got this thing in my hand that I'm looking at. I'm going, I don't even want this. I gave it back and said, I'm done. I'm out of here. But you know what happens within a week? One of the people's like, you know, that really kind of hurt to hear you say that. But I want you to know, man, it's cool. We all have our moments. Why don't you just come back? We're going to do this again in a couple of days. Dude, it was the old prophet. And what was said was judgment, but it was judgment for me to hear too. Like, I'm like, you guys need Jesus, man, because this is, this is lame. But it's amazing how you can look back and go, oh, that wasn't that bad. Yeah, it was. And when God spoke through you, he meant it. Why do you want to go back? God wants to take you forward. Paul says, I leave what is behind and press forward for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He's like, man, my walk is not about digging digging in my past. It's about walking forward now. My new identity is Jesus. And as we go to prayer now, I just want to ask, man, is there anyone right now that's trying to put a lasso on you and pull you back to a place you do not belong? Because I'm here to tell you, it is time to not go back. And don't break bread with them. Don't say, hey, let's, let's be one again. And don't drink water with them. Like, this is where I'm going to really find refreshment. Come on, I'm going to go back to this thing and oh, I'll, I'll be refreshed there. Man, look at Your old life is not refreshing. It's rotting. And it's so exciting is that even though we're more familiar sometimes with what's behind us, faith demands us to walk forward in excitement because it's better in front of us than what was behind us. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for this beautiful chapter. And Lord, it's, it's a weird chapter. There's a man that is of you, that does what you tell him, and then doesn't do what you tell him, and he dies. And then there's another guy that said he's of you, and he makes a guy sin and, pulls, and invites him to go and do something stupid, and, and he denies you in the process with all that you said, and then... He gets, I mean, it's like, it seems like he gets less for it than the guy, the first guy. But he has to deal with this for the rest of his life with the fact 
that whatever compelled him to do this in the first place, be it out of jealousy or anger or spite or whatever it was, that he is responsible for bringing another person to temptation for his own destruction. And God, never let that be said of us. And don't let us be fooled to go back where we came from. To go break bread where we know is to our destruction. To go and seek refreshment where we know is to our destruction. But instead, God, let us be people tonight who see that differently. So we commit ourselves to you. Jesus, we know you died on the cross. You are the perfect sacrifice. Not this fake altar of a cow where the cow, the, the, where the cow doesn't even show itself battered, but just a cow. And Jesus, you, God clothed in human flesh, took all of our sins upon you and were beaten and tortured and split in horrible ways and then pierced. And I want to recognize you paid for every one of my sins. Why in the world would I look anywhere else? And when you rose again, you made clear you're everything we need. And you lead us to a new life where that old life through that corridor is left behind. We're crucified with you. We are no longer the creation we were. We're a new creation and the old has passed away. May we embrace that and walk forward with you in faith. Though we may not be clear of the steps in front of us, we want to be clear on this, that where you lead us is best. And behind us should be behind us. So we say, yes, Jesus, lead us forward. In your name. Amen.